I want to welcome you to LifePoint Church this morning. Uh, my name is Greg Volkart. I'm one of the elders here. Um, Pastor Jim, as Evan alluded to, he's still recovering from COVID. And, um, but he wanted me to remind you all that LifePoint's messages uh, can be found. You can view them all at mylpcoli.com slash media or on YouTube. Um, if you type in LifePoint Church of Olympia on the search bar, you can log on to our, our YouTube channel. And while you're there, please, um, we hope you'll hit the like button. We also uh, will ask that you subscribe to the channel. And then don't forget that you'll also find an online version of the sermon notes form at mylpcoli.com slash notes. So um, if you're new, uh, we've been going through the book of Acts chapter and verse and... Um, this sermon this Sunday is is about the stoning of Stephen and ultimately how that led to dispersion. So, so please stand with me and let's read our scripture text together. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when <laughs> he fell asleep, and Paul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Thank you. You can be seated. So our scripture today is on Acts chapter 8, verses 1 to 4. And this is obviously a very short passage but it's pivotal in Luke's presentation of the events that gave shape to the early church and its unfolding mission. In verses 1 to 4 of chapter 8, Luke appears to be drawing attention to a threefold chain of cause and effect. So we'll start. Step 1, martyrdom triggered a great persecution. And there rose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. This is an execution spawned, an execution spawned a powerful persecution. The word arose in verse one seems an understatement, but the Greek verb actually indicates that the persecution burst upon the church suddenly and without warning, like a violent storm. On this occasion, the persecution was confined to Jerusalem. But it wouldn't be long until it overflowed the city limits and reached out into the surrounding area. And at the forefront of this persecution was this young man named Saul. 
So let's talk about Saul, Saul the persecutor. You know, Saul is his Hebrew name, and Paul is his Greek name. And it's a wonderful testimony to the grace of God that we know much more about him as the Apostle Paul than we know about him as Saul the terrorist. Uh, but scattered throughout the books of book of Acts and his letters to various churches are allusions to and descriptions of his activity as a persecutor of the church. The reason that I had us read the, the latter part of chapter 7, along with today's text, which is Acts 8, verses 1 to 4, is that I wanted you to see two facts about Saul that Luke provides for us in uh, chapter 7, verse 58, and in 8, 1. Uh, this, this first verse in chapter 7 is, they, Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. The witnesses referred to here are those who are stoning Stephen. So in order to be able to throw stones with force and accuracy, they were taking off their outer garments and laying them at the feet of a young man named Saul. You know, lay something down at the feet of another in those days was to express recognition of their authority. Just as we saw earlier a few weeks ago when we were studying in chapter 4 where some of the disciples were selling their houses and lands and bringing the proceeds and and laying them at the apostles' feet, um, in the same way, the action of the members of the Sanhedrin here in laying their garments at the feet of Saul identifies him as the one who was wielding authority that day. Saul was the instigator in Stephen's murder. Second, in chapter 8, verse 1, Luke adds that Saul approved of his execution. He was not only the instigator, but he was also the enthusiastic cheerleader. He later admitted these things when he he spoke to the citizenry of, of Jerusalem. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. And when the blood of Stephen was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. Now this way that's being referred to here is is the reference for the church of Jesus Christ, for Christians. That's what they called themselves back in those days. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think about persecution, all kinds of images enter my mind. What does persecution fundamentally mean? The word Luke uses here is the Greek diagmos, which literally means to pursue someone, to put them to flight, to hunt them down like an animal, as a hunter would stalk his prey. And that perfectly describes what Saul was doing to Christians. In verse 3, Luke says, But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. That word translated ravaging connotes brutal and sadistic cruelty. Not only was he dragging men and women off to prison, but in some, some cases he was seeking their deaths. Decades later, in his letter to the church in the Roman province of Galatia, He wrote, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. Years later, 
making his defense before Herod Agrippa at Caesarea, he included this description of both his motives and his methods. I myself was convinced that I, that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but that when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Writing to Timothy, Paul confessed, Formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. To the Corinthians, Paul acknowledged, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. You know, as you kind of hear Paul at this point, Saul's, when you hear, well, later on, when you hear Paul's voice in describing these things, how he persecuted the church, it kind of shows his heart and how how saddened he was by his former life. But isn't it also amazing how God transforms people, um, how they how he transforms our hearts when when we come to follow Jesus Christ, when we hear when you hear his calling into our hearts and we come to follow him as Lord. Um, and, you know, it's just amazing to kind of hear, see this transformation in Paul. As he wrote to the church in Philippi, Paul laid out his pedigree and credentials as an observant Jew. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But then he was quick to add, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and that I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now, here's step two in the chain of events Luke is describing in today's text. The great persecution led to a great dispersion. As they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Albert Moeller put this in his memorable words when he wrote, The people gathered under the banner of the gospel were now a people scattered by the sword of persecution. So notice what's happening here. The word Luke uses describes what a farmer does when he scatters the seed. They were broadcast to areas they had not previously occupied, as if blown by the wind. And in a very real sense, they they were by the winds of the Holy Spirit. The fulfillment of the Great Commission given by Jesus 
to the church is being enabled. And the bearers of the gospel are being scattered, not in spite of persecution, but as a result of it. You remember uh, Joseph um, and how his brothers had, had sold him into slavery and he was brought down to Egypt and, and uh, ultimately, through God's working in his life, he was brought to have become the second, um, the person with the second highest authority in all of Egypt. And his brothers came to seek uh, grain from him. And once they recognized him, they were afraid because they knew that, you know, decades earlier they had, they had done these terrible things to him and selling him into slavery. Um, but Joseph said to them, he said, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And in this case, Saul meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, for the advance of the gospel and the fulfillment of his kingdom agenda here on earth. Notice again that three-word phrase, except the apostles. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. The apostles remained in Jerusalem. How and why they didn't become victims of Saul's campaign of extermination, we are not told, and no blame on their part is imposed. Jerusalem still, for a while, would be the headquarters of the new Christian community. The apostles evidently saw it as their responsibility to stay there, and God preserved them there. But there's something else noteworthy that's happening here. The movement of the church outward from Jerusalem as Christ compels and accompanies them on mission to the world will increasingly place Jerusalem in the, in the, and the temple in the church's rearview mirror. You know, this movement seems subtle at this point, at the outset, but when we view it later in retrospect, the realization is that the earth really did move on that day that persecution broke out. Now, now Luke is careful to point out the burial of Stephen, and we shouldn't pass over it too quickly. Um, devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. This little verse actually reveals three important things. First, the fact that Stephen's body had been left unburied and exposed to scavengers in the elements by those who stoned him to death shows us the utter disrespect and hatred his persecutors bore toward him and the humiliation they were willing to inflict on the church. Second, it tells us that Stephen's death was not the result of a legal execution. Otherwise, they would have been required to appropriately bury the victim's body. Third, Luke says that devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. He doesn't say that they were disciples of Jesus, although they may have been. But in the New Testament, that label is applied to Jews who may have been open to consideration of the gospel. These men did as Joseph of Arimathea had done with the body of Jesus, and they loudly lamented his death. Jewish law prohibits open lamentation for anyone who's been stoned, burned, beheaded, or strangled under judgment from the Sanhedrin. But it allowed for inward mourning. So the fact that they were openly lamenting 
is again a reminder that this was an illegal execution, even according to their own law. Instead, it was, as Luke describes, a mob action. So now, here's step three in this cause and effect uh, uh, relationship that's 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 brought out here. The great dispersion led to even greater mission. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. If we're paying attention, it's hard to miss the link between Jesus' command in Acts 1, verse 8. But you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Again, the wind of the Spirit blows the gospel and its witnesses like seed into new places, creating new opportunities for people of other races and ethnicities to respond to the message of God's grace through Jesus Christ. Again, we might think of another statement in Exodus where we read, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. Tertullian, one of the second century church fathers, wrote that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. John Stott commented that Satan, in this case, overreached himself, and his attack had the opposite effect of what he intended. Instead of smothering the gospel and putting an end to it, persecution only succeeded in spreading it. So what does it mean that those who were scattered went about preaching the word? Were they all preachers in the formal sense? No. The expression probably means that wherever they went, they simply shared the good news about Jesus. And because they did that, whether in formal or in informal settings, the gospel continues to spread like wildfire. And it's still true today that that far, far more people are led to personal faith in Jesus Christ through the influence of family or friends um, than all those, all those uh, that are brought to him through preaching of pastors and evangelists. You know, a modern example of this dynamic is what has taken place in communist China. Under the most severe regime and severe oppressions since 1949, the underground church has not only survived but thrived. And the gospel has continued to spread in China so that there are millions of Christians in that country. Still, today in China, uh, and in nearly a 100 nations around the globe, churches are being closed and demolished. House churches are being raided. Christians are arrested, interrogated, and imprisoned, sometimes killed for their faith, yet the gospel continues to advance. So I would like for us to take some time to consider two questions. What exactly is persecution? And how should we think about it and the prospect that we may face overt persecution in our time? So, how to think about persecution. Persecution can take a variety of different forms from very mild to very severe. But in all cases, we could simply think about it as any hostility experienced as a result of identification with Jesus Christ. 
Many of us are unaware of the increase in Christian persecution around the world. David Curry of Open Doors USA recently wrote that this year's findings indicate seismic changes in the persecution landscape. So let me just share a few statistics with you on, on what that what this looks like. In the past year, 360 million Christians, 360 million Christians, or one in seven believers around the world suffered significant persecution for their faith. Here's another one. Every day in 2021, an average of more than 16 believers were killed for following Jesus. Let that sink in. With, with, here's another one. With close to 6,000 total martyrs, 2021 saw a 24% increase in Christians killed for the faith. 24% in one year. 24% increase. LifeWay research indicates that in 2021, Christians in 55 nations suffered under very high persecution levels. A new dubious record on the World Watch list, which previously had only ranked the 50 worst countries. An organization known as For the Martyrs reports that in 2021, 11 countries now score in the extreme level for their persecution of Christians, where where just six years ago there was only one, and that was North Korea. And it's not just worldwide that this is happening. You know, persecution of Christians doesn't occur only in faraway places. In the past two years, in both the United States and Canada, a significant number of pastors have been arrested and churches churches shut down or the doors closed because the leadership conscientiously objected and refused to submit to governmental mandates that would have required them to close their, their doors. They objected on the grounds of separation of church and state and paid a price. Pastors in Canada have been arrested and jailed for teaching what the Bible says on the subject of homosexuality. In October last year, the National Association of Evangelicals surveyed evangelical leaders in the United States about their experience with persecution and their projections for the future. While only 32% of these pastors in the United States indicated that they have been persecuted for their Christian faith, 76% expect they will be persecuted in the coming years. The 76% of American pastors who expected persecution indicated that they are not thinking primarily in terms of physical violence, but rather social, financial, and political pressure. As Jim has talked with fellow pastors and leaders of various ministries, it seems like most are recognizing that the cultural wind is shifting dramatically and that we all anticipate that in the not-too-distant future, there will be a backlash against Christ's followers and against the church in America. But look, let's face it, persecution of Christians isn't anything new. It's been happening in various places for over 2,000 years. The Bible helps us understand its source when it comes. We have an enemy And though he and all his angels will one day be thrown into the lake of fire, uh, the apostle Peter warned us, be, be
Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. The threat level has, has never really changed, nor really has his tactics. Paul taught the believers in Ephesus, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. You see, folks, the the real enemy is not the Democrats. It's not the Republicans. It's not the liberals. It's not the conservatives. The real enemy is not the atheist. It's not the social, hostile social and political organizations. The real enemy is Satan and his legions of demons who operate in spiritual realms and who come against God's people in a myriad of ways. So how can we respond to persecution? Let me suggest four ways. First, anticipate it. The Apostle Peter wrote to the persecuted church, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And the Apostle Paul said categorically, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But before either Peter or Paul wrote these things, Jesus himself said, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. And if you were in the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. The Lord Jesus and the apostles taught us to anticipate opposition and persecution. So perhaps the question we need to ask is not, why are we being persecuted, but why would we not be persecuted? So in responding to persecution, I mentioned to anticipate it. Secondly, let's embrace it. Though our cultural orientation and our sense of pride and self-preservation screams otherwise, God's word tells us there's actually a value in suffering persecution. So we need to learn to recognize and embrace that value, not as an ostentatious watch me suffer kind of way, but quietly and humbly. And allow me to quickly suggest three reasons. First, when we're persecuted, we are allowed to share in the unique fellowship with Jesus. In Philippians 3, Paul outlined a, a list of things that have been of great value to him that he had given up for the cause of Christ. And in verse 10, he goes to the heart of this reason why. 
that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. The language he uses here implies that sharing in Christ's sufferings is an essential part of a deepening relationship with Jesus. Christ is a suffering Savior. And if we are to be truly one with him, suffering will be part of the curriculum. A second reason to embrace suffering is that it develops our character and conforms us to the character of Christ. James, the brother of Jesus, wrote these familiar words. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Trials and persecutions serve to strengthen the character of believers like steel is tempered in the forge. And I, I think that, I think, let's just stop for a second here. I think this really only works when we embrace or come to grips, come to grips with the fact that this is a spiritual battle. You know, if we're focused on the people that are persecuting us, um, I, I think, you know, we, we just, let's face it, we do tend to avoid these things or we tend to fight back against them. One or the two, you know, it's fight or flight. But if we can really understand and, and grasp that this is a spiritual battle and that God has allowed us to be part of it, I think that's, that's where, that's where we can be sharpened through it. Um, so it's easy to be spiteful towards those who persecute us, but Christ's likeness produces kindness and blessing in the face of spiritual opposition. Peter said of Jesus, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Third, persecution for the, for the sake of Christ presents us with the opportunity to love and support one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul taught the church in Corinth, but God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. We can, for each other, be a community of support amidst suffering and a community of honor. Persecution has a way of unifying the church like nothing else can. And, you know, we can look to China as an example of that. Now, I said three things, but there's actually a fourth reason to embrace suffering that I want to share. It increases our longing for heaven. Paul wrote the believers in Rome, I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. You know, we have a lot of options for therapy these days for, for all kinds of suffering, don't we? While, while in relation to many things, this can be helpful, it's, I think it's, a, it, it's of greater help for us to develop a sound theology on suffering. Even with all the various forms of therapy, we cannot ultimately avoid or eliminate suffering. In fact, by trying to do that, we may find ourselves being disobedient to the will of God and miss out on the good God may choose to accomplish through it. 
in our lives. So I talked about anticipating persecution. I talked about embracing it. And now I'm going to talk about celebrate it. You might be asking, really? Celebrate it? Yeah, I I read this week a statement from a Nigerian who identified himself only as Pastor Marcus. He said, before the Muslim extremist group attacked, we lived in peace. We heard rumors of extremists. And when they came to our town, they destroyed the villages, burned down the churches, ransacked homes, and killed many of us. Our people fled. After several months, the extremists left, and I returned. There were very few of us. When Boko Haram attacked, everyone's heart was frightened. We were all full of trauma. When we came back, some of the churches had blood on the walls. Anyone who saw it or heard about it didn't want to go to church anymore. The attack put a lot of fear in our hearts. People thought if they went to church, they would get attacked too. But still, the Word of God kept reminding me that anyone who puts their trust in God won't be forsaken. I began to visit the church members in their homes, but still only four members agreed to come to church. And that was how we began to worship again. Today, the church is full. So if if hardship comes this, if hardship like this comes your way, do not feel discouraged, but count it pure joy. Remember, persecution did not just start with you. It has happened in the past. It's still happening. And anywhere persecution arises, the gospel is being spread. In a Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught his disciples, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who are before you. So do we actually believe what Jesus said? Do we see blessing and persecution and insults and false accusations? Can we actually rejoice and be glad because our eyes are focused on the prize of heaven and because suffering marks us as his disciples? Remember back when we were looking at Acts chapter 5, verses 27 to 42, where we read that the apostles were beaten for preaching and teaching in the name of Jesus? And when the Sanhedrin released them, they went home rejoicing that they were counted worthy to to suffer dishonor for the name. They were neither intimidated nor deterred. They kept on preaching in the temple and from house to house that Jesus is Messiah. So I've talked about anticipating persecution, embracing it, celebrating it, and finally I want to talk about leveraging it. You might ask, leverage it how? Well, leverage suffering in order to make Christ known. Today's scripture text is one that demonstrates the truth that God uses persecution and suffering to advance the gospel. Paul understood this. As he sat in chains under house arrest in Rome, he wrote to the believers at Philippi and said, I want you to know, brothers, 
that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. You see, Paul was confident that God is always intentional and that he could and would and did use his imprisonment for redemptive purpose. So we need to look at, look for the opportunities that even our most difficult experiences present to us to help others come to know Jesus. Festo Kivinger, I'm, I just rolled that off the, my tongue. It's probably not, it's probably not the right way to pronounce it, but Festo Kivinger was a 20th century Anglican bishop in Uganda. Once reflecting on the death of an esteemed colleague and the impact it had for the gospel, he commented, without bleeding, the church fails to bless. At the deaths of both Stephen and Jesus, one by crucifixion and one by stoning, we hear identical prayers. Father, forgive them. Father, do not hold this sin against them. These are powerful, unforgettable prayers that came from the lips of two who were surrendered to the sovereign will of the Heavenly Father. Jesus had taught his disciples, You have heard it said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. I believe even here in the United States of America, that overt persecution for our faith in Jesus Christ and for the various stands on social and moral issues that our discipleship leads us to is just around the corner. If the Lord delays in coming, then I believe that in my lifetime, and certainly in my children's lifetime, active suffering for his name will become a reality for those who will endure. So we need to decide in advance how we will respond. We can reject it and avoid it at all costs. You know, in fact, the the Bible says that there's going to be a falling away in the end times. Um, the other the other thing we can do is anticipate it. We can embrace it. We can celebrate it. We can leverage it for the greater influence for the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this message, Lord, although it's a difficult one, Lord, to hear. But Father, I, I pray that you continue to bring it to our minds this week and recognize that, um, help us to recognize, Lord, that when persecution comes, and we know that it will, Lord, that, that we are, help us recognize and make the decision ourselves, Lord, that we will be ready for it, Lord, that we will be able to anticipate it, that we all can embrace it, celebrate it, and ultimately, Lord, leverage it to bring those that don't know you, Lord, to give them, to share the gospel with them. So be with us, Lord, as we go, Lord. We pray that your Holy Spirit is, is reminding us of these things. We thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen.